Welcome, everybody, to episode 31, Stem Cell Editor. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, what up, dog? Hey, man. How's it going? Good to be back. Uh, excited to in you know interview our first editor. That's uh, I know this departure. is very cool. This is very this is again we're trying to do little things uh, different, right? So we got a uh, uh, Christina Lillyhook from Cell Stem Cell to give us a little perspective into the world of editing, which could be secretive to the researcher out there, right? Man, we have no idea what's going on. Yeah, we're gonna uh, look into their world, you know, see how uh, how the actual editing process goes. So uh, that that should be an interesting insight for many of our listeners. Yeah, we'll also try to find out what it, you know, how she went down that path. She's, a, uh, you know, she's a PhD scientist and uh, was at the bench and then made the transition. So we can ask, you can go and ask her what went into that decision. Um, how are you doing, man? Everything's good with you? Yeah, things are great. Things are great. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trucking along with my project and uh, got some nice results today. So I'm, I'm happy. That is good, my man. You got to keep on, keep on trekking. I'm just like, I feel like I'm writing grants every day. Yeah, that's, that's um, that kind of stinks, but you know, so is the life. So is what we do. So uh, we should um, we should get into some of the stuff here before, because I know we got a packed show, and and we want to make sure we rip through these papers. Uh, so I guess the first thing is Yosef got this T-shirt. You like that shirt, right? Yeah, yeah. Fits I'm gonna nice. wear it tomorrow when I play squash. <laughs> so Yosef got the stem cell podcast T-shirt. You guys can all get them. Go to the website stemcellpodcast.com. There's a little tab that says T-shirt. You can click. You can buy it. Um, you know, part of that money comes back to the show to help it uh, move forward. Um, but we also are doing this thing, which I think is cool. Uh, if you if if you guys go the audience, if you go to stemcellpodcast.com and you enter in your name and email address. You'll be automatically entered into Yosef and I are just going to give away a shirt every month. Maybe we'll up it to a couple shirts a month. We're just going to pick people off the list. It's just a way of us uh, to just getting you more engaged in the show so that we'll be able to provide you with uh, some better resources. Um, so that's cool, man. I'm getting my shirt. It's in the mail. I'm excited to get oh, it. You haven't gotten yours yet? No, I just put it in. I was just lazy. And you I know didn't get it. You but know I'm cool. jealous and I want it. So it, I got it. It is an actual American apparel shirt. So uh, made in America. And so it's a nice, comfortable shirt. Yeah. And it's not one of those ones oh. where you buy a medium and it feels like a large. It's actual a medium. So buy your Yeah, size. that's important. Yeah. Yeah, that's why do you shop online. Sorry, this I is do. I, yeah. I can't shop online. I've gone burned many a I, times. So uh, yeah, snap, snap. No, yeah. forget that. Anyway, so um, we are the Stem Cell Podcast. Uh, we are the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. You can check them out at isscr.org. Um, get you know, send us your email stemcellpodcast.com at Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, um, and so um, Joseph, I was just like looking over the notes here. And um, it just made me think, we're already in November, it's going to be winter, then it's spring. And what's going to be really awesome this year is the summertime conference for ISSEO, where we're talking about them, is in Stockholm, dude. Have you ever been in Stockholm? Never been. I'm excited I've never to go. been either. Yeah. I'm really excited. And uh, it's uh, the reason why I said summer is it's supposed to be incredibly beautiful in the summertime. Um, and the one of the things that's awesome about ISSCR that I love is obviously the science, but it gives you travel. I mean, how often are we going places? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm you get the opportunity you know, to go to a place like Stockholm. You should take that opportunity and go check it out. Yeah, and uh, we're gonna have a booth there too. So uh, we're gonna be doing live interviews at, in Stockholm, Sweden, at the ISSCR conference. So definitely come by and uh, check us out. We'd love to uh, hear about what you're working on. 
So it's going to be like little flash five-minute interviews. Uh, we already have a, a episode from ISSCR this year, so uh, we're going to try and re, uh, reproduce that. So. Yeah, that'll be that was a lot of fun. I think maybe Yos, maybe we'll get like a little, maybe we'll get like a spot, like a little flat in uh, downtown Stockholm or something like that. <laughs> Hang out, I'm, like uh, the locals. Yeah, maybe there's some Airbnb action we could find. Some some cool. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, let's so. see here. Do we need to do any other things before we kick it to the roundup? Because I know there's a bunch of things. It was funny because today when I was gathering the papers, I was like, well, there's it's kind of on an in-between week. And then all of a sudden, like Stem Cells, st- cell stem cells November 6th issue came out. So uh, I grabbed a couple fresh, like incredibly fresh off the wire. So, um, all right, man. So I think we should kick it off into the uh, science roundup. Um, as you all know by now, the science roundup is, is brought to you by Thermo Fisher. In fact, I did my Thermo Fisher 24-hour stem cell talk today, Yosef. I don't know. Did you do yours today or yesterday yeah, or something? Yeah, no. I listened to it last night. I was just sitting at home listening to me. <laughs> it's <laughs> weird, right? Yeah. But it's cool. It's, it's like a very... It's, it was very different. It's very new age. And all the all the talks actually will be archived. So you can go and click and, and check out all the talks, including Yosef and I's talk. It was really cool. It was actually a cool experience. Uh, so go check that out. Go to StemCellPodcast.com. Click on the banner and it'll take you there. Yosef, kick off that roundup, man. Okay. Uh, there was a neuro case report of arachnophobia or fear of spiders being abolished in a man who received a left temporal mesial lobectomy. So this is the first case of cutting out a fear of spiders like that from uh, not involving uh, the amygdala. Usually uh, these sort of fears go away when you do that. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know why they call it the mesial uh, lobe, but uh, yeah, what's a mesial? Yeah, is that like I, the I, middle? Is that I, like medial? I, I was thinking medial, but I relooked it up. That's that's the mesial lobe. So uh, oh boy, that's my a cool word actually. Uh, yeah, moving on. There, I just saw this <laughs> broke out today that in nature there was a. Uh, they basically described where the penis came from in uh in basically they looked at snakes and lizards and chickens and all sorts of animals and they 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 discovered that basically in snakes and lizard that the penis arise from what will become uh or would become the beginnings of the back legs whereas in mice some of the cells destined to become part of the tail take on that task uh so and so wait and, what did they do did they create do you know how they did it there was this there was this basically a center called the cloaca or cloaca c-l-o-a-c-a and it's a cavity that's the destined to become uh part of the lower part of the gut and this was really uh depending on where that is that depends on if you have two uh vestigial sort of pieces as in the snake versus uh see it's closer to the tail there whereas um in mice, it's uh, it's it's different. So I'm sorry. It's in in snakes, it's closer to the beginnings of the legs, whereas in mice, it's closer to where the tail is. So depending on the position of this cloaca or cloaca, I'm not sure how to say it. Uh, that's that's basically uh, where penises come from. So it was two separate reports: one in Nature and one I think in Scientific Reports. Uh, that came out this week. So uh, nice November oh. uh, paper for you. There was a science.
it's my. Nice, man. Yeah, yeah. So now we know where that came from. Now uh, we know where the penis comes from. Yeah, there you go. Uh, there was a science paper using fMRI in older adults. Uh, they found that in their 60 and older group that had uh, they had a greater bilateral activation in the brain and more engagement of the frontal cortex rather than the middle or posterior brain regions. So this was one of the first studies to show enhancement. So uh, uh, something that's not found in younger adults. So uh, a region that's more active. So maybe that's where wisdom comes from, these regions. So you can find that in science. Uh, there was another science article describing a mouse model for Ebola. How well-timed is this paper? Wow, that's yeah. uh, where were they sitting on that one? Yeah, they showed that two genes make mice resistant to hemorrhagic fever-producing proteins, uh, which are called TI1, T-I-E-1, or, and another gene called TEK, T-E-K. These molecules uh, signal to blood vessels to loosen or tighten their gaps between cells. And uh, these genes are less active in mice that get the fever. So uh, you can find that in science. That's a well-timed paper. Yo, real quick, what do you think? Do you think that somebody is researching that and then they're like, oh, wait, we can use that for Ebola and just go into a model? Or do you think they had the model and just really didn't you know, push it forward but until it became popular? Do you know what I'm saying? The, the like, way it's I re- extremely timely. Yeah, the way I read the abstract, they were thinking Ebola and uh, the, the fact that you know there's an outbreak, science must have just picked it up right away. I'm, yeah, that's I guess. I'm yeah, man. That's um, interesting. Very cool, though. Yeah, yeah. So now there's a nice mouse model. Um, there was a cell paper where they basically created jet lagged gut bacteria so you can your gut bacteria also what? can get jet lagged as well you could throw off their timing and that's over in cell uh there were two nature uh pa- studies using whole genome sequencing to identify more than 100 genes mostly de novo uh genes for autism and 60 of these 100 uh more than 100 genes 60 of them had a 90 percent chance of contributing to the syndrome and this is significant because before there were only 11 genes that had a high confidence rate like this so uh, you can find these two studies in nature Uh, there was a clinical chemistry study analyzing rna molecules in human saliva Uh, could reveal many of the same disease diagnostics as in blood they identified over 400 circular rnas uh, which uh, their function is really unknown, but they do bind microRNAs. And uh, microRNA levels in the saliva were similar to blood. They also found peewee interacting RNAs and uh, so the, uh, that were more abundant than in the blood. So it's pretty cool that um, you can maybe do a saliva test uh, for blood di- yeah. that to replace blood diagnostic tests. But uh, I didn't know that there were circular RNAs in the saliva. I think this was actually the first study to show that. I did not know that either. Yeah, uh, there was a PNAS. Our favorite journal, PNAS. PNAS. Yes, study resurrecting an extinct virus from caribou feces. <laughs> they, uh, it was in a 700-year-old <laughs> layer of an ice core. They isolated complete small circular genome of a DNA virus that was distantly related to plant and fungi or fungi infecting viruses today. Uh, they named it 
ACV, CFV for ancient caribou feces associated virus. How great oh is that? <laughs> they also awesome. isolate a partial viral RNA genome that was related to an insect infecting virus, and they call this one ancient Northwest Territories Crippa virus or ANCV. So you can find that over in PNAS. Uh, there was a molecular psychiatry uh, study. Uh, uh, then they analyzed the genomes of a hundred eight hundred and ninety five Finnish, uh, you know, Finland uh, Finnish pr- uh, prisoners, and they found two genes that are associated with extremely violent crimes. Um, so they, I, you know, I knew this before that MAO, the monoamine oxidase A gene, uh, it's a serotonin and dopamine breakdown gene and cadherin 13 variants were associated with, uh, extremely violent crimes, which has obviously has like, you know, for the criminal justice system, you could say, yeah, my client here, he's got this variant, which makes him more susceptible. So give him imagine that five. Yes. Lears, five. Yes. Less years for his sentence. You know, it's we're, we're heading to that Gattaca stage where they're going to read your genome when you come out the womb and be like, Oh, high propensity for violence. This one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, you're right, though. It's totally true. I yeah. could see that. Wow, that's crazy. Where was this, Joseph? Molecular psychiatry. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there were. I don't know if you saw this. There was a Jupiter-sized sunspot region designated AR-2192 uh, observed October 18th on our sun. Our sun's doing a lot of crazy stuff lately. Um, I think it's... Yeah, no, that makes me a little nervous. I know. Way, it's at saying. the end of its like 11-year cycle, and you know how all the magnetic waves sort of rejigger themselves every 11 yeah, years? Yeah, I don't where... need any rejiggering in my sun. <laughs> So uh, there's so it's producing a lot of solar flares, and actually one of them was a CME or coronal mass ejection, which are the you know in the eight hundred eighteen hundreds late eighteen hundreds there was CMEs that would have you know knocked out all of today's electrical. Uh, I think it like it it, it uh, there were uh, I forget what they were back in the day. The the telephone poles basically exploded. Their old telegraph wires uh, exploded. So if we have something like that happen today, that would be. Imagine if electricity went away for the you know unforeseeable. Yeah, dude. Future. I don't even. I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, I'm not one of those survivalists who like you know is ready for something like that yeah no more facebook no more podcast no more skype <laughs> uh there was a nature study <laughs> found that uh it could be possible to stimulate brown fat to burn calories or convert white fat to brown fat reducing body weight uh the team explored an adenos adenosine receptor in brown fat called a2a and a Adenosine or adenosine is released when the body is stressed and then picked up by the brown fat, which then begins energy produ- production. So white fat lacked this receptor, and you can find that in nature. And I'm just going to sneak this last one in because you know I'm big on the uh, renewal, renewable energy. This is a uh, science and nature nanotechnology papers, two separate papers showing that perovskite, this like... Uh, mineral deposit that was discovered in russia like 200 years ago uh it's a a calcium titanium oxide mineral composed of calcium titanate titanate uh so these crystals provide a cheap way of 
creating solar cells, perovskite, so uh, without using silicon. And these two papers, basically, uh, one of them describes a two-step process that begins with coating a surface with lead iodine solution and allowing it to dry, and then the surface is coated with methyl ammonium iodine. And as it dries out, a compound from the two layers come together to form perovskite crystals. And this, uh, by playing with the concentrations of the starting solutions and other processes, processing conditions, they can make films with larger crystals that are needed for efficient solar cells of up to 16%. Uh, right now, the average for silicon-based is 24% energy efficiency. So this could be combined uh, with uh, perovskite crystals to increase it to 3 or 5% uh, percentage point, uh, conversion points. So I'm just really big into renewable energy. Yeah, you, yeah, I hear you, man. Me too. Uh, it's, uh, do you think we'll ever make that switch? Do you think we'll ever this country well, will evolve that way? Right now, it's on par with uh, uh, the coal production and electric. I mean, uh, natural gas. So uh, we there's been more solar production in the last year than in the I think the previous thirty years. So it's coming online, and it's it's becoming efficient enough where it's on par with coal and all these. So I, I'm really big into. It. I think uh, Mark Ruffalo is the one who says when you have a new, you know, when a solar uh, panel, you know, melts down as opposed to nuclear energy, it's a sunny day. So yeah, um, that I'm really yeah. into uh, the renewables. <laughs> That's funny, so actually. I had to sneak that one. You know, you know, it's interesting you bring this up. We we're talking about Stockholm. Stockholm's like the European green capital. It's one of the most like green cities. And when I was looking up research just about Stockholm. They cut their carbon dioxide emission by 25% per inhabitant, and the they have their plan and the way their trajectory is they'll be fossil fuel free by 2050. Are you kidding me? So why can't we do what, that that's here? What they, that's what they say. Isn't that incredible to I just know. have that? Just yeah. knowing that. Anyway, um, all right, man. Let's move into the uh, to the stem cell stuff. So the uh, the stem cell person of the year was selected and it's Masahayo Takahashi. So thank you everyone who voted for me, but there was a well-deserving winner. Wait a um, minute. Well, you did come in first place though. On that, uh, on, on the on online that poll. From everyone out there. That's yeah, why. She, my people's out there. She my was peoples. like, yeah, she was like number six or seven on the list, but, but she yeah, did she, what really, she only, she only really has a, a therapy for IPS in clinical trials seven years <laughs> after the discovery of IPS technology. So yeah, that's pretty um, good. It's, yeah, it's impressive. So yeah. congratulations to Dr. Takahashi. Uh, you can check out the article on IPSCell.com at uh, Paul Knopfler's blog. This is really cool, man. I don't know if you know this whole like uh, – this is like uh, – it's kind of like soap opera for stem cell world. So this, this there's – I guess the stem cell patent by Thompson is – is like really contested and people wanted to be thrown out for a long time. Jane, they Jamie Thompson, the founder of human ES cells? Yes, yeah, sorry. Thank you for clarifying. He discovered the ES cells and he patented them and they're held by what's called WARF. Uh, or like, you know, the Wisconsin has this incredible uh, hold. So anytime anyone wants to do any therapy with embryonic stem cells, they have to get like approval, licensing. It's like, it's, Are it's, you kidding me? It's, impe- it's impeding, right? Are you kidding me? So, no, for, this is this like, reminds me of uh, Jonas when he was like, "Can you patent the sun?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, really? Exactly. So, so the U.S. Supreme Court is asked to, has been asked to intervene on this patent, and Jeannie Loring, who's a stem cell scientist at the Scripps, will be asked. Um, she will be really pushing this, and so I guess Loring and these two public interest groups 
the Consumer Watchdog and the Public Patent Foundation have been trying to get this patent overturned since 2006. Um, and she's saying that, uh, you know, which is a really good point, she's researching the use of iPS cells to treat Parkinson's. And she said that the remaining patents impede the development of embryonic stem cell therapies. I think that's really true. I think she's like really such a point. Um, what they say, while his Thompson's, this is what people are saying, right? This is the argument goes. While Thompson's feat was significant, obviously, it was not patent worthy. It wasn't a patent worthy technological advance because there was technology around there to, you know, with methods to use the finding for animal embryonic stem cells. So his advance was just obvious, mm. right? Like he was, it was an obvious. And whenever something's obvious, you can't get a patent. I've learned yeah, that. It's yeah. a very, the point of obvious is so, so that's what they're going to take to court. That's what they're going to try to get thrown out. If they did, um, you yeah, know, you can imagine it would yeah. help things move a lot faster. Yeah, but using Lyft was not obvious. <laughs> uh, well, that was for amount um, using FGF was not obvious. No, but the the idea that you can propagate an, a stem cell line from a human that that's it obvious, was, I guess, you know, yeah. because you did it for every other, you know. So anyway, so that's very interesting. We'll keep you updated on that. Uh, I was reading that the managers of the of the discredited staff stem cell study will, are going to refund their salaries. <laughs> crazy. So the top administrators of the Ricken, um, Japan's National Network of Research Labs, will voluntarily return one to three months of their salaries to atone for their responsibility for the staff stem cell fiasco. Wow. So imagine that, man. Talk about like, Jesus, it's crazy. Um. Um, it, look how, look where that's gone from. That's yeah. gone from like biggest biggest discovery in the world to people got to give their salaries. <laughs> I know that's pretty. Uh... Oh my god! Oh. This was a really awesome study, and it was in it was pre- presented at the National Breastfeeding and Lactation Symposium in London. I know, oh, right? I, let me let me run with this. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's breast milk stem cells may be incorporated into baby. What do you mean? So. So everybody knows that breast milk is, you know, is good for the baby, right? Antibodies, Probably. all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's like it gives, you know, immune support as well as nutrients. So I guess that there's been controversy whether there's actually stem cells in breast milk. There's some reports and some people say that wasn't the case. Um, so this study took tomato tomato mice. So does that, so I guess these are mice genetic genetically engineered to glow to be red, right? They'll glow red. Every cell in their body can turn red. So you can trace them. So they took these tomato red mice and they put them with pups and they nursed so they allowed them to breastfeed. And what they found was into adulthood they looked in the body and the 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 pup or now grown offspring the adult had red cells in its adult counterpart, like derivatives. So it was like the like some the cells from the breast milk got into the developing, you know, into the developing baby and contributed to tissue because mm. they found it like integrated in the brain, in different areas. So they don't know what what the hell this is for, like why, what kind of evolutionary advantage or how that contributes. But this is the first time they've ever seen a, like an integration of those cells into the offspring. I can't believe cool, they were in right? the brain too. Uh, I mean, yeah, wow. it's wild, right? How yeah, did I get there. I guess uh, that's a pro breastfeeding argument because there you go. Yeah. It becomes part of you, yeah. literally. Yeah. Three uh, stem cell reports: the 3D reconstitution of the pattern neural tube from embryonic stem cells by Ellie Tanaka's group. So they made these like like neural balls, you know. So they're like little mini neural tubes. They're almost like three D 
Everyone's all about the 3D nowadays, yeah, by the way. Bro, yeah. Um, so they took, they did neural induction and nature gel and they made these 3D neuroepithelial cyst looking things. They claim they're universally, uniformly dorsal and you can ventralize them to floor plate. You could posteriorize them using retinoic acid. It's basically like another model of, <clears throat> you know, uh, neural stem cells and erectoderm in the dish. Mm-hmm. This made a lot of mainstream press. This is in nature modeling human development and disease in pluripotent stem cell derived gastric organoids. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. They basically made stomachs. Yeah. That's they made like a mini 3D stomach and they using it to dis- and the example they used was how they can investigate gastric disease, peptic ulcers and like, you know, like Heliocobacter pylori, which is the bacterium that causes ulcers. ulcers yeah. And they could check that out. Dude, do you know that story? How they figured that out? Uh, that guy Warren, they won the Nobel Prize yeah, because yeah, it's a crazy story. I forgot it though. Remind they me. didn't believe that it was long thought that uh, ulcers just ki- no bacteria could live in the stomach. There was just too much acid. He so gave he, himself ulcers, right? Yeah, he got up in front of the people at a meeting and he drank the bacteria oh. to directly prove that it caused wow. ulcers. That, yeah, that's going he won the Nobel. Out. He won the Nobel Prize. Would you? Would you drink? Would you give yourself ulcers for the Nobel Prize? Um, I probably would not for the Nobel Prize, just because I'm crazy and I would want to prove <laughs> prove it that bad. And you get a million dollars, so and you get a million dollars. Um, let's see, IPS derive. Well, you'd be a Nobel Prize winner too. That you gotta too, remember that. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Where was I? This is interesting. Destroying brain tumors using herpes loaded herpes loaded stem cells. Wow, that so sounds apparent. Like herpes herpes simplex viruses, like destroy and are kill or toxic to these cancer cells. So this group <clears throat> at Harvard Stem Cell Institute wants to do this for you know glioblastoma, these cells and the, these really fast-growing tumors in the brain. So there's like a procedure that gets done. They go in and they do some sort of – it's called debulking. They like trim it down or something. Mm-hmm. Then they could put these mesenchymal stem cells loaded with, this, with herpes <clears throat> on this kind of gel or something right next to the tumor and it actually will attack – and destroy and kill the tumor. So they're thinking about using this as an approach um, along with the current ones for glioblastoma. Um, this, two papers out of NICEF. <clears throat> this one, I was talking to you about... New York about Stem Cell Foundation? The New York Stem Cell Foundation. IPS-derived dopamine neurons reveal differences between monozygotic twins discordant for Parkinson's disease. Um, this is out of the lab of um, Scott Noggle and uh, and friends down at the New York Stem Cell Foundation. Yosef and I were talking about this. Um, we should probably spend some more time on this in depth because it's Yosef and I have a. Uh, we should get Scott on. <clears throat> yeah, we should. Ah, it's a good idea. We should get Scott on because this is really important. And uh, I know Yosef and I have a deep love for uh, research in Parkinson's. So um, it just came out. Honestly, I didn't read it in full, so we're going to save that. I just wanted to drop it while it was hot, and then. Uh, this is also out of the lab of Dieter Egli, who's also at the New York Stem Cell Foundation. Comparable frequencies of coding mutations and loss of imprinting in human pluripotent cells derived by nuclear transfer and defined factors. So the long and short of this, Joseph, which was really cool, they took the same human somatic cell <clears throat> um, and they reprogrammed it both ways and found that they look similar. Do you know what I'm saying? Reprogramming so, with like, a nucleated egg if versus... You do, if you uh, do nuclear transfer and or you do... Define factor reprogramming. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't matter. Like reprogramming is the same regardless, and uh, the resulting cell, you, you know, it's it's very I th- similar. I thought there was a report in Nature. Was it that uh, 
and Metalopov's group showed that uh, when he reprogrammed using nucleated eggs, it was actually the there was a difference in the you know they did the cobra analysis. The methylation status uh, was more like human ESLs than when you use the four factors, the Yamanaka factors. Uh, you know here. Here they say that the, the these two type cells, the nuclear transfer ES cell and the IPS cell, uh, they show similar genome-wide expression and DNA methylation profiles, and they have comparable de novo numbers of de novo coding mutations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty wild, actually, that that, that that happens. It's very cool. So, again, I haven't read it complete in full, but I'm just reading the summary. This is at Cell Stem Cell. It's a short article. Uh, cool. Dieter Egli. Uh, uh, Metalopov is also on the line, too. So, congrats to Dieter. That's a nice transition. We'll go from an article. We'll get yeah, congrats, Dieter. We'll go from the uh, article um, of stem stem cell stem cell to the interview with the editor. Okay, so our guest for tonight is Dr. Christina Lillyhook, who is the um, as a scientific editor, the senior editor with Cell Stem Cell. Cell Stem Cell is really the uh, preeminent top stem cell focused journal. Uh, out there to to publish uh, papers in the stem cell world too. So we're happy to welcome welcome her to the stem cell podcast. Welcome, Christina. Thank you, Chris, uh, for this uh, wonderful, nice introduction. Sure, no problem. So I guess why don't we start with for the audience? Why don't you just you know introduce yourself uh, uh, first as a scientist? Tell because um, you know I, I I think I think and I know people tend to be naive and think that um, editing people sometimes editing manuscripts are not in fact scientists, but in fact most and the majority are. So why don't you introduce yourself as a scientist and tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your uh, background in science and and then we can get into uh, how you how you got into uh, the world of cell stem cell and editing. Sure. I have a PhD in neurobiology and I studied Alzheimer's disease for my PhD and then I became uh, interested in uh, stem cell biology. So I chose to pursue a postdoc in adult neural stem cells and I did that postdoc with uh, Steve Goldman who is now at the University of Rochester but who was then at the Whale um, Medical Center in New York City. So that's kind of my my scientific background and then um, I had a pretty academic project. Uh, I was studying neurogenesis in songbirds. And when I was doing that as a postdoc, I became concerned that this was not going to be something that I would be able to get a job on, quite frankly, because it seemed like it was very, um, it was very academic. And, and it seemed like that would be a, a difficult project, basically, to go out and, and find a job as a PI. So I started to think a little bit about other things. And, and then this kind of just came along that was coinciding more or less with the launch of Cell Stem Cell. And I saw the job ad and I applied. And I was uh, very happy I got the job. So so songbirds. Tell me, tell me a little <laughs> bit about what it was like working with songbirds. Um, it was lovely. <laughs> was it? Yeah, they're very cute. Uh, they are very interesting, and uh, but you know, as as a model, they are pretty demanding. Mice are not so demanding, but uh, canaries that I was working with, they were very demanding. You had to go and do all sorts of things with them every day, so it was pretty time consuming. And so just like, sorry, Yosef, go ahead. Yeah, no. So were you studying neurogenesis in the songbird? Um, yeah, we have a, a beautiful system for uh, neurogenesis. Uh, Arturo Alvarez Boya has uh, done some beautiful early work in, in this uh, area. Uh, so they basically they have the the subventricular zone is this proliferative zone, and then the it is constantly proliferating, and then the neurons migrate in 
in the parenchyma and then they go to the song nucleus and it's a testosterone regulated response and that's kind of where they accumulate and then they build so to speak new new connections and then and that's also related to their ability to perform songs yeah that was so, uh i guess spearheaded by fernando nadelbaum over yeah, at uh, rockefeller yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So great pedigree. So, yeah, so cell stem cell was really launched. I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it, you know, I, at the time, it, there really wasn't any specific, or maybe there was. Tell me, uh, stem cell journals, or maybe there was few. And I imagine at Cell Press, where cell stem cell is a part of, there was developmental cell, which I imagine was getting uh, the majority of the uh, stem cell related. Um, kind of manuscripts is that correct and I guess through, through with the amount there worse is that what, what this gave them the decision you know maybe we should launch this I'm not sure I got that question quite right so, so in other words the, the, the cell press didn't have a stem cell specific journal at the time when it was launched and I know there was developmental cell there still is right correct and so uh, what really I guess the question really is what what was the what was the deciding factor to launch a stem cell specific journal? Was it just the pure volume and the and, and where the field was going? I think it it was recognized. You know, I wasn't really part of the whole launch. I just came when when that was all done, and I imagine that this was um, this was. I think there was some discussion with the the ISCR at the time, and that there was kind of a recognition that this was the field was really emerging, and that that there could be a basis for a field specific. Uh, journal within cell press because and then that has I think been the case for all when any of the sister journals have been launched that there has been of course content that has been then been sort of spread out in other in other of the sister journals and cell or like you said developmental cell but now but that then when the, there's been a launch of a sister journal then then have been sort of more focused on that specific topic. Great. So I, maybe you could uh, open, uh, get, take us behind the curtain of the editorial <laughs> process. Because for me, I, I really don't know. I've never been in a editorial boardroom or how it works if you guys are all independent, if there is even a boardroom. So when a paper gets submitted to Cell Stem Cell, and there's so many things that could happen. And our audience is a little bit, you know, part scientists and part lay. So um, the whole process from soup to nuts is, you know, uh, a scientist submits a manuscript and I guess the editor decides or the sub-editor decides if it goes out to review. That's the first phase, correct? Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, the manuscript is submitted and then uh, all teams work a little bit differently, but uh, Anyone can read all papers that come in, but there's usually one editor that is assigned as a handling editor, and that editor is responsible for reading the paper in depth and and literature, and then sort of summarizing that paper to the editorial team. And then, but the all editorial teams that the abs send it out for review or not. So there is discussion. I think <clears throat> I think people also might not realize that there's a discussion being held, so if if needed or. Or a time. I think <clears throat> I don't. I, I don't know this, but I, I've talked to people, and I think they assume that there's just one person who takes the paper, looks at it, and just says, "Nah." And you know, I, it is not that. It's not that way. I mean, there is there is crosstalk, if you will, amongst a team. Right. It, it, that sort of depends a little bit. When you are a more junior editor, then uh, making these kind of decisions can be a little bit difficult because you don't know the related literature all that well. And you also don't know to, to search for related papers that somewhat undercut uh, 
the novelty of the paper. So then, then it helps to have a, a dialogue within the team and you become a bit more senior than you know the field better, sure, you know which are the key papers are and you know, you know, you can sort of evaluate the paper a little bit more independently. So this is, is a little bit of a range. So that's, now, that's the first phase, and then it goes out to the editors, and sometimes you I get think, the... I'll say something because I forgot. Uh, so so most it also happens even, I mean, for, for all editors, uh, that we have this sort of informal advice process, and that can be like if we just can't tell, even after reading the paper and discussing amongst ourselves and maybe also asking editors in other team, we just can't tell, uh, then we can uh, also, we usually solicit an informal external advice from someone who has relevant expertise, someone who works in the area, and that can also help. I see. And so once it goes out to review, I guess uh, you typically have three to four reviewers. And um, how's it? a lot of the times it feels like there's usually just one who is, at least from the you know publishing side, it seems like there's one, edit, one reviewer. I've seen these uh, YouTube videos of people just railing, <laughs> yeah, just railing, uh, putting it to like, you know, depictions of Hitler railing against this one, one reviewer who just won't get your paper in. And um, it, it's just, it seems like so... Sometimes the the senior editor has to step in, and I, I'm curious as to how how that how that whole process works out um, behind the scenes. Yeah, I think the majority that I see consideration processes are, are not polarized, <laughs> as obviously <laughs> as review a famous YouTube video. That would be somewhat difficult. Uh, uh, most most uh, most of the time. As an editor, you actually see that there's there's often more overlap uh, with with the, what the reviewers are t- talking about and how they view the paper. Uh, whereas I think for for an author, it can be a bit more difficult to see that the reviewers actually are are sort of more uniform. So I think that kind of becomes they can just appear more polarized. I think from an author's perspective, because we are. We think differently and we try and see where, in what way are the reviewers thinking about the paper? Are they raising similar concerns or this, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious as a senior editor, is, is your day just spent reading articles all day? I mean, obviously you do like uh, more, uh, I guess not bureaucratic, but you know, paper and managerial stuff. But I'm just curious how much of your time is spent actually uh, reading a paper from beginning to end? Is that something that is subcontracted out or you have, or is that no, a, no, no, no. a major portion uh, of your you day? Do, I mean, you guys, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and I see that you actually do some kind of like shotgun approach to a lot of related literature. So you must have gotten to a point where you can read a paper pretty quickly and then be able to summarize it, right? Mm, because yeah, yeah. before I became an editor, for me to read a selfless paper took, could take me like four hours. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Right? But yeah. obviously I can't spend four hours. I mean, sometimes or some papers that are complicated, I will spend a lot of time because I, I don't understand them. I, fe- I feel I find that I need to look up related literature just to understand what the authors are saying or because they are not, not as clearly presented and it's, it's, um, it can take time. But if a paper is clearly presented and I, can, and, and I read quickly, I can sort of get what it is that, that the paper is about and, and what, what the advance is pretty quickly. Mm. So then along those lines, you, then, you transition from a scientist 
into this into this position. So for someone who might be interested in 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 doing that or or in a career in in the publishing world, whether it be editing or something, what what are some qualities that you that would make that make a good editor? I mean, clearly you need to be able to process a lot of information. You, be, you need to be able to read uh, the literature and be involved. I mean, do, you, do could you just offer some? You know, you've been doing this now for a while, so could you just offer some maybe you know some advice or just some pointers to some people that if they're really thinking about it, what what you think would uh, be needed to do 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 this job uh, well? Yeah, a pretty common advice that we offer is to to try and read just not within your field uh, and try and read broadly and and try and get a sense for the bigger questions um, because those are ultimately what people are going to be interested in and, and those are the kind of things that sort of spur and sort of push the field forward and and those are the kind of things that editors think about a lot like what what is known and what is the novel what's the new thing and what's how how is the how is the field pushing forward? What's the new information that we need? What's the new knowledge that we are seeking? So, and I think it helps if you can read more broadly. So read TOCs, science, nature, cell, of course, <laughs> what am I saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and just try to get a broader sense for, for the scientific enterprise and not just within, you know, the Western blot and the antibody that you are working with, you know, that's, that's their sort of more general advice, and, I think. And I just have a, uh, a, a, curious, a curiosity. Do you ever feel like you have to bite your tongue, like you know that something's about to come out in the future or is in review and you just can't talk about it with somebody? Or do, do you ever get caught in that where you're like, you have privileged knowledge that may not be out there yet and you have to uh, act like you don't know? <laughs> Right, yeah, it's that can be that takes a while before you develop that poker face. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you, you do, you know. I mean, you do get trained. It's it's a bit intimidating actually, because you know when when you come as a green and then you get told all these things that are confidential and all these things that you can't do, you can't say, and then but you know it does become second nature, mm. you know, in a little bit. So I actually listened to one of your podcasts when you were interviewing Austin Smith, and I noticed that the timing of that was right before yes was. Mouth, and i was kind of a little curious if he was going to say anything about it but he, of course he didn't so he's also you know, very professional so. poker, we poker were saying yosef was saying you know after that we were when the paper came out yosef and i were saying oh man he couldn't man it was if we waited a couple more days we could have had him talk about the paper but um but you know so here's a, a an interesting uh question i and i might we might have even brought this up with austin um now, from the edit, from the editing side and the editor side, in this in this day in science, there's a lot of multidisciplinary, you know, collaborations, especially with big data, you know, computer science, bioinformatics, even mathematics. We've talked about it with Austin. So, you know, as as a as a you know scientist or somebody who's submitting the manuscript, and there's an element of stem cell biology, maybe mathematics, neuroscience. You know, we and just like when we submit grants, our the hope is that the on the other side they try to bring in as broad of knowledge as possible to to in in the hopes that you know all the aspects would be understood. I imagine um, and, and the editors they try to do that, correct? I mean, you you try to get the best expertise as possible to understand all all facets of of the right. disciplines. Yeah, that's true. So picking reviewers becomes a little bit of an art. Uh, you, you start to get this this um, 
you have a reviewer pool that it's it's quite big and and sometimes you obviously have to to find reviewers with specific expertise if if a certain paper comes in and it requires uh, and it has like like you said multiple aspects that they all need to be uh, evaluated fairly and it's impossible to find three reviewers who knows <laughs> who let sort of cover uh, all those aspects uh, in one person so so yeah then you and then then that also can make it a little bit difficult then to uh, for an editor, uh, because then you have reviewers that are evaluating different aspects or different parts even of a paper, and then it can be a little bit difficult for uh, um, the reviewer to, de- uh, sorry, for the editor to then come up with a, a uniform decision. You see what I'm saying? Yes. But are they? But are, so are they? But are they asked to specifically, let's say, critique or judge just the math? Or in other words, would you you know would you bring a mathematician on and say, listen, we really just we would like your input on the mathematical aspect, or no, you just you, please just read this paper and review it as is. Well, it's kind of evident. Like if you have a paper that is both biology and and some theoretical components, and and you invite someone who has a theoretical background and doesn't know anything about biology, it's it's sort of inherent. I mean, you can clarify. Uh, I used or usually often sort of let them know when I do that, that I have invited reviewers who have biologic or experience in the biology or something like that, just to kind of clarify that I'm looking for that. And, and conversely, if, if I'm asking reviewers who, are, who have a more of a biological focus to review papers and there's some modeling or some kind of aspect in the paper, they will usually be very nervous and say, I, I can't comment on the math. Mm. And I obviously <laughs> let them know that that's fine, you know. And so, but we don't have that many. I mean, it's, I know that this is something, I mean, we don't have that many sort of mathematical theoretical papers. So most of them are, are pretty sort of biological. I'm also curious uh, when papers come out, you know, when there's two papers that cover the almost the exact same topic and they're timed, how is that done? Is that done by the editor or do they collaborate, the two scientists, and they know each other and they submit around the same time? Or is it mainly on your end where you may hold a publication because, you know, another similar study is in review? How does that timing ever, how does that work out? <laughs> well, I think it's it's it could be arranged. It's it's not like one thing. I think it's a, it, it is a little bit eerie, like sometimes because sometimes there seem to be this several papers like during develop in development about a certain topic, and and it is I don't know how that. I mean, it obviously can't really originate at the journal level. It must originate for for someone realizing that this idea is interesting and we're pursuing it, and then maybe people travel to different meetings, they talk to each other, and then other labs also start working on it. So I think obviously. It's something that originates uh, in the research community. Mm. And then, you know, at some point, these papers do end up also in, in journals. And then, you know, then they, there could be recognition that there's related papers also sort of coming around. So, I mean, it's not like, I mean, if, if the timing works out so that you can you can sort of coordinate it, then that's great. But it's mm. not something that we are actively pursuing. I see. And and has has it ever gotten ugly? Because sometimes it seems like, you know, the the reviews will come back and the P, PI can maybe write a response. And there's 
tends to be a back and forth where it's like uh, you go under sometimes three or four revisions, people responding back, and it could take months and months, maybe a year even, to, to f- go through the revision process. Uh, obviously, it shouldn't, but there have been cases of that. And I'm wondering, well, has it ever gone really ugly where it, there's a spat between the 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 scientist submitting the work and the reviewers uh, going back and forth or... We have this policy with like one major round of revisions and that's designed exactly to sort of cut that down because it gets to the point where these repeated considerations are just not productive. And and I don't actually know of journals that that let these kind of things go on forever and ever. I mean, we, we, as I said, we have one major round of revisions and, and if, if there's, there are other ways also to solve it, then like you mentioned, if we do have a reviewer number three, (laughs) <laughs> and there are ways to sort of figure out if this person is, is kind of unreasonable or is actually having valid concerns, and that is to then ask ask reviews, other reviews to cross-comment on, on that person's remaining concerns or to ask for additional advice or just so you can kind of get a more of a broader perspective. I mean, it's it's quite rare that we will actually sort of sink a paper on the basis of one a, you know, one irate review, and, mm. and usually authors will often then also question that decision, and and absolutely, absolutely right to do that because uh, then, so so then what happens uh, then that is that we can then seek additional advice to sort of see that that whether whether we made the right decision or not. So speaking on the whole of the field for the stem cell field, in your position. You must you must have really seen the growth of the field based purely on submissions. I would imagine over time you've seen an increase in submissions. Um, and also, which I find very interesting, you must also see these trends emerge because I have to imagine that topics are submitted in clusters, right? So I imagine you went through a uh, – you still probably are, but there was a huge IPS phase, right, or or, or a reprogramming uh, kind of wave and then a kind of a direct reprogramming. So, you you know, you the editors almost can see these new emerging trends in the field before, obviously before anyone else because they're not published. That, that, that must be very interesting to see over time. Yeah, we do uh, – are quite interested in, in trying to, like I said, so we do analyze the, the literature, what other journals are, are publishing, and, and we also, of course, go to meetings and we try and, like, pick up what's the newest thing, what's the newest thing that's going to come out, and, and, and what are people interested in, and what's the newest topic. So that is something that we are trying to, um, yeah, just trying to follow closely. Mm, and but, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. But I would still say, you know, it's it's really the – Science is kind of coming from the scientists. It's not like, you know, we are sure the trend. So, you know, this is just something we're following. Yeah, and in terms of the review process, uh, it's sort of like people talk, how they talk about capitalism. They'll say, oh, it's it's so bad except for everything else. You know, it's it's like the review process is what, you know, the peer review process, is there room for improvement? Because I, I know people complain about, but what's a, a better system than having peers, your people in the field review it? I, I know Chris has mentioned that some of the reviewers can see each other. They know who each other are, and that offers some sort of transparency. But obviously, their comments who it is or have suspicions, but is there any ways of, uh, or innovations that you've seen or have seen proposed, uh, that are under consideration for, uh, improving this process? Yeah. You talk about the open 
the sort of open review that eLife is starting, like when they're getting all the reviewers on the phone and then they can all talk about the paper and then come up with a uniform recommendation. And I think that's, I think that's a great initiative. And, and I see all sorts of other initiatives popping up and different publications models that have been very inspiring to us and to our work. And mm-hmm. it's kind of made us revise, think a little bit differently about how we do things. And um, I don't see, foresee that Cell Press is going to be able to do what eLife is doing, because I also suspect that not all reviewers will want to spend that amount of time sure, sitting on various review, open reviews. And But, you know, there are clearly some advantages of that. And so, you know, so we are obviously learning from that and see if we can apply that. And, and the, the one thing that, that we do do is that we do the cross-commenting and that that's also it's yeah. somewhat, yeah. so it's a little bit of a similar function. I think that's a great idea. So um, just transitioning, one thing we like to ask is uh, uh, sort of where's the beef question? And you're in a very unique question, uh, position where you can uh, sort of see the future uh, faster than others in this field because you're you're privileged to... to uh, information that's hasn't come out yet. So, uh, in a lot of our listeners, kind of want to know where they, uh, where the the cures are going to come from. And uh, the, obviously, there's a ton of clinical trials going on right now. But do you see any, uh, you know, more immediate uh, benefits from stem cells uh, for patients? Any sort of diseases that uh, you, you're hopeful for that will be uh, not cured or treated in the near future? <laughs> wow, that was a very uh, simple question. Uh, <laughs> I know, but uh, people uh, always feel like they have to, t- you know, we always say, you don't have to tell us where you think that where, you know, the next healing will be, but uh, in your perspective, what, you know, do you, what, what area of stem cell do you think is the most, is the closest on the horizon? You know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, the IPSC trial in Japan for retinal disease. I think that's, that's a pretty exciting one and I would be, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to sort of seeing more how that's, that's transpiring. But, you know, there are also others, um, I'm aware of, um, Stem Cells Inc. are also doing some clinical trials uh, for various neurological conditions. I mean, that, that, uh, also seem like they are mm. progressing. In a pretty positive direction, and those began this month, I believe, right? The the ones in Japan, or was uh, is they, that... I think they injected the. I think they started. I think they put, injected the first patient. I believe. Um, uh, I'm not not quite sure, but I know it's either it's on just started or it's very very soon. Yeah, um, yeah the 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 R, you know the eye the retina the RPE is a very um, is a very common answer because it is very close. There's a you know ACT. Um, and there is a lot out there, so it is it is really exciting. And the I always say it's an easy window into the brain, the eye. So it's a it's a easy it's a good way to access it. I, you know, I I wanted to, I just want to touch on this before you know before you go because you know a stem stem cells are so along those lines which Joseph brings up because people are really excited about it, and that same excitement, that same hope, um, can sometimes be kind of uh, cluttered by. The, the you know the negatives about stem cells that we hear, and in particular when we when in the world of publishing, there has been a lot of of this negativity around stem cells with these you know this whole stab controversy and these retractions that we're seeing, and so you know in the world of publishing and and with these retractions, I, I guess my you know where my question is, 
has has cell press i mean I, I know they have a standard just like i'm sure most do right but in the wake of this as someone who submits papers and and reviews them you know is there is there some way to you know people are going i feel like you have to take a paper almost at face value it's hard you want to judge the science for what it is as a reviewer if we're also asked to judge whether or not they're making this up or not it opens up a whole nother game right so you know, how do you approach this uh, f- uh, from, you know, cell press or from, you know, when you sit around? I'm sure you talk about this. Is there's, there's no rubric to review, right? There's no checklist. So, so how do you, uh, what have the discussions been? I'm sure there has been about, about you know, making sure the submissions are honest or, or just, just, you know, going forward in this area. Mm, well, and that's, that's actually something that also has changed quite a lot. Uh, since I started here as a, just a general climate, I think, in, in sort of talking about these issues. I, I think when I started, the, we were sort of more operating under the, the sort of assumption that we as editors or as journalists weren't really, we shouldn't really be tasked with policing whether whether authors were fabricating the data and we had to sort of operate on a basic level of trust mm-hmm. and that, that you sort of, that's the way you evaluate the paper. You have to trust that, that this is the, the, their best effort put forward and, and then it's up to the reviewers to sort of evaluate the data. And and I think that has changed a little bit uh, and that's also, I think, in, in part because of the sort of online community and, and various blogs and various sort of more like policing activities and they're sort of pointing out the duplicated blots. So, and so there's been this sort of public uh, online um, discussion about this. So I think that there's just a little bit of a different awareness now. And I think we still would not be at a point where we would want to subject every paper that comes to us uh, for these kind of things. But obviously we are, are going to start looking at, at it uh, further down the line uh, before publication. We're going to do some, some more of this sort of quality assessment. Yeah, there's no lie detector test for <laughs> these submissions, unfortunately. So you can't really tell. Um, and the when... problem is that a lot of these, uh, like the duplicated images or images in, in different things, they are very, very hard to detect. Yeah. Via they, you know, you basically need a manual eye looking at it because it's it's apparently very visually difficult to to sort of do some kind of algorithm that actually detects that. So yeah. it's difficult. I, yeah, I I heard that they're they're you know some they are trying to come up with these computer algorithms or something that will scan and that will actually run through and try to pick out uh, basic you know picture duplications and things like this and it's just it's just bizarre that it's gotten there but unfortunately um, you know it, it it has because of all these things that are popping up and then you know it, it, like with this whole who is the res- where does the responsibility lie well you say ultimately obviously it lies with the person who wrote it right but right. you know at some point um, and I, you know, I'm using this this stat because it's it's the kind of the pinnacle example that happened because I think there were failures on both sides, um, and that there there is there is going to be some responsibility. I mean, if if it bears out on the on the journal side, if it was, you know, especially if it was recommended by outside review that this is just not not good and it still goes through. And, you know, I. I, I, there's also there are situations, and I don't know this, and I, I don't know if really you can answer this question, but you know people have to also remember that when a paper comes back from review, those are just recommendations, correct? I mean, the, it's still up to the editorial board and the editors to decide whether that paper is published or not, uh, correct? I mean, you could still get positive reviews, and if 
you know, it's still the editor. Editors can say, you know what, we're just it's not fit for this journal. We're not going to take it. It doesn't at all end with the reviewers. Is that correct? Well, I mean, if you review a paper and then the reviewers all come back and they say they love it and they think it's fantastic, I mean, that would be very difficult to then write a letter to the author saying <laughs> they published your paper. But, but what about the other way? The other way is actually more intriguing, you know, it could be that, and that's where some of the problems may lie. If, if all three say, well, you know, it's not so great, and then it somehow ends up in the journal, that's when, that's when the whole process can get, can go, could be bad. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's what you do. I'm just saying, like, you know, if, um, I hope that's not being done, but uh, my, I guess my point is there is a job. You mean there- if there is like a technically weak paper and then the the editors sort of overrule the reviewers because it's it's such a hot topic? Is that what you Yes, asking? yes, and I, right, right. And I, I mean, I'm sure I don't. I'm, but I guess what I'm saying is that can happen. The way the way the process is set up, it's not it's not designed where. Um, if there's a box check, no, 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 it's an automatic no. There's, it's always, there's always an element of judgment on the editors, correct? Yeah, of course it is. Right, obviously. right. But, uh, right. I mean, not to the point where we are like, you know, I mean, we can. Yeah, we can sometimes. It, it, we require to, to go through papers in, in great detail. So, But uh, um, do, can do, I just say something? I, th- I think that if you want to sort of look a little bit positive at sort of the online community and then sort of the raising concerns about image falsifying image data, I think that's, it's, it's not so bad to have that be a little bit of a, on, on everyone's radar because that will also then um, motivate busy PIs or, or mentors to sort of become a bit more involved in figure preparation with their, with their students and postdocs. And then that, that would probably be helpful. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you joining us tonight. It was uh, great. I mean, the editors and reviewers, they I mean, a lot of the reviewers do this. Do, uh, they don't receive financial compensation for it, do they, uh, the reviewers? And, no. Yeah, so, like, but we don't pay them. Yeah, but the, I mean, it's really just, it's sort of the community policing itself and, and the editors and reviewers are the gatekeepers to all the science that we see. And um we really appreciate that you sort of, you know, pulling back the cloak and showing us how the sausage is made, if you will. Um, <laughs> I, so. I actually, I have one. I have, that when people talk about peer review, that there's just this emphasis on on the negative aspects and then how one reviewer blocked the publication of this and that paper. But, you know, what I see on, on the thousands of papers that I have read and reviewed uh, during my years here is that I see mostly that reviews are incredibly constructive and helpful and pretty unselfishly because it, it does require a lot of their time. So. And, and I will say as a young reviewer in the field who's just beginning to review papers, and I, it, 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 it requires a lot of time and a lot of work. And you, How long does it take you to review a paper? Oh boy! <laughs> I let's see. I actually have like a process. I get the paper. I spend a good, I spend a good two to three hours with the paper. It's just me and the paper. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I will read it. I will, I will go through it, and then I will walk away from it. And then I come back. I have things highlighted, and then I spend some more time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of pulling out pieces. And then I'll have another day where I start to draft my comments. That's on a paper where there's some papers where I review and I read and I just know it's just not, it's, you know, there's just a lot of technical problems and I'll be, but, you know, it takes me a good amount of time. I, there's multiple days. I don't do it in one day. Um, and it depends on the, you know, it depends on the, you know, the length of the journal and where it's from and things like this. But I, I really hope that it, that's why I take it as a, as a big responsibility because I see myself on the other end and I just I want to be able to give it a fair, 
a fair shot, just like I hope those, those reviewers are doing when they have my paper. So um, I, I, I never really, like you said, I never really appreciated that until I'm on the other end. It's kind of like now having a child. Mm-hmm. I never really, my parents always said to me, you're going to know what it's like when you have a kid. Uh, what you you know what you did you're gonna know and I said yeah whatever now I have a child I know exactly what they're talking about so I think that's this kind of reciprocal responsibility um, before we go I just have one more thing do you miss the bench Christina do you miss being at the bench sometimes absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> I know it's terrible but I really don't miss it at all <laughs> see there you go everybody out there who thinks they might miss the bench if they go into that world you see that you really you really probably wouldn't but Christina, thank you so much for taking the time and talking yeah, with thank us. You. It was great. It was great touch- touching with you. And we'll talk soon. Thank you again. Okay, bye-bye. Have a good night. Bye-bye. 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 So there it is. That was a nice interview, huh? Very cool. It's like uh, the Wizard of Oz lifting up the uh, the curtain there, getting a glimpse behind the scenes. That's really cool. Very interesting. And a very interesting career option. I don't, you know, Harold Varmus was on talking about it. Um, you know, not the only thing to do is science and science and probably, you know, think about how much you learn, how much you learn about that field, reading all those papers is pretty cool. So, yeah. So thank uh, you for, for coming on. Let's, uh, what are we going to do? We're going to rant it up. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, telling Chris about this before we started recording that, you know, when you, when we start a differentiation of from a human ES cell to say neurons or skin, whatever you're trying to make, you have to have a starting point. So you know that when you add defined factors, uh, directed differentiation, you want to have it done on certain days and certain time points. But the starting point for everybody seems to be different. It's not. There's no standard as in what is the first day. Is the first day that you start the differentiation when you plate the cells, is that day zero or is that day one? Oh, it's the worst. This is the eternal it's the question. It's the worst. Can we can we it's, set a standard right here right now? <laughs> can we? Yeah. So this is what we're gonna do. For, um, I you know would be I would love to put it out there for everyone listening. If you guys write us and tell us what if it's day zero or day one at the beginning. When do you ever use day zero though in your normal life? I you know what that's a good point. I when when are you ever like yeah you know what I'm gonna start a new workout routine today's day zero. You never day, say that. But you, you do say, say ground zero or you know the the. I, I don't know. I, I, I've been doing day zero, but you know, there's a compelling here's, argument yeah, for day one. Here's the reason why I think we do day zero because a lot of things for differentiation protocols don't start immediately. For example, you'll plate your cells and you need to give them a couple days to grow and then you'll start. So you actually have like a minus two, minus one, yeah, and then yeah. a zero. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think that's why you do it. That that's way. a good point. That's a good point because you don't go minus one, then one. No, you wouldn't skip. You have to go through zero. I mean, unless I would day zero is the a way day. Yeah, day zero must be a day when the sun doesn't come up. <laughs> it's just apocalypse <laughs> yeah. day. You know. So, so, so is the appropriate thing then day zero? I do day zero. So, you know, I'm I'm just gonna just lay down the gauntlet and say day zero is the standard. But I there I think there's a compelling argument for day zero being day one. <laughs> Well, yeah. So, yeah. So, 24 hours is day one for you. Uh, yes. So, the next day is day one. When Yeah. So, I'm with you. So, this is the Stem Cell Podcast saying <laughs> that the start of the protocol is day zero. Is day Let's zero. just standardize this because <laughs> it's, it's a disaster when someone's like, 
no, day one, no, day zero. Well, day one. You mean day one. I'm like, no, day zero. They're it's, like, you mean day one? I'm like, see, this is the problem. I know, because <laughs> once you get to day 10, it, that could actually be day 11, depending on how you're looking at it, or day nine. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, I, one day can mean a lot. I know, I know. So the you timing know, like of one these- one day is yeah, a lot. I know. So we're going to set the standard day zero right here, right now done day zero all right, all right. it's day zero uh so that's it man you all set yeah Anything man i'm else? good have a, uh, have a good night my brother i'll talk to you soon all right see you later all right peace